0: Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. I'm really excited for this show because we have someone who I've known for a very long time. Paul Bemis will be on our show today. Paul is the president of Applied Math Modeling, makers of CoolSim computational fluid dynamics software. They've been making CFD software for data centers for many years. And before that, Paul was working in the computational fluid dynamics industry. We get into data center design, we talk about containment methodologies one of the most important pieces of knowledge that I've shared with customers over time are the Bernoulli principle and the ideal gas law. It makes people's lives so much better. And it's so simple. And we really get into the weeds with it today. And if you don't learn anything else, it's worth listening just for that. Let's go. Paul Bemis, thank you for joining me on Good Data. Uh, You have been somebody that I have worked with for many years. Your company, Applied Math Modeling, has developed this software program called CoolSim, and it's one that we have at our company really relied on over the years. And I wanted to have you on because I've very much appreciated working with you, and many, if not all, of the things I've learned about airflow in data centers have come from working with CoolSim. It's been a long process. We've been working with you almost, you know, for maybe seven years, somewhere around there. to yeah, make think you're right. This happening, and it's we've been through a lot of iterations, and it's been a very interesting process to go through because we were a beta tester for a while, which kind of inherently means that we saw some bugs that got fixed and see the, the kind of hell that you go through as a developer <laughs> from, yeah. from the other end. But before we get into that, I wanted to go back and talk about where you got started. Looking up your bio, it, it looked like you got started in electrical engineering. Is that like electronics engineering or was it something more along the lines of large scale electrical design?
1: Yeah, well, well, thank you, Drew, for having me today. And yeah, you 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 have been through a lot actually with us. You've been a customer for a very long time, all the way back to version three of the software, which uh, was painful. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for your patience. Yeah, my background is a little bit unique. I started out as a mechanical engineer, undergrad mechanical, but I was always interested in electrical as well. I always was taking circuit courses as well because in mechanical you can understand sort of what's going on oftentimes by viewing it, but when you're doing electrical you take it apart and you can't see anything move so it always fascinated me as to what exactly was going on inside that radio or phonograph or whatever i was disassembling so as i was an undergrad i took courses in electrical as well and then when i graduated i ended up working what we used to call the 128 technology belt around boston and i worked for companies there where they were doing mechanical package mostly electronics packaging and some mechanisms but a lot of it was electronics packaging and the circuit guys the design engineers seemed to me to be having all the fun for the mechanicals it was you know put a box around it put a fan on it have a good day so that wasn't very challenging but the electrical part of it was pretty fascinating in particular the analog side of it which was control systems and mechanisms and stepper motors and also amplifiers and so I sort of drifted into electrical and meanwhile started getting my master's in electrical engineering at night at Northeastern and uh, then eventually got an MBA as well so I, I kind of went from mechanical engineering to electrical engineering design computer design and then into product management and then later in life when I came to do CoolSim, it was a full circle because now we're doing data centers which are essentially electronics packaging but instead of the computer itself we're packaging the entire room of course
0: right so you were saying back in the day you worked for hp and then there was a company that preceded that but that was apollo in apollo. Yeah, apollo,
1: apollo computer was the sort of one of the first workstation companies in the world and we, we <laughs> you know it's kind of interesting our definition at the time of a workstation was the three Ms? The three Ms we always define it well there's a megabyte of memory, a megahertz of frequency, and a megapixels. Megapixel, you know, million million yeah. pixels on the display. That's uh, <laughs> uh, the three Ms world. world. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that was the level that you wanted to achieve or that was just the lowest end of what a workstation would be
1: that was the lowest end if it didn't right. have those three things we didn't consider it to be an engineering workstation but it was local computing it was you know the we had grown up at that time in the period of time sharing which we all time sharing right. is defined by a group of users sharing a common resource and you slice that resource with respect to time and we always used to say the more the, the more users it was a degrading experience because the more users you had the more performance degraded <laughs> Right, that was that was our knock on time sharing, and our <laughs> goal was local computing. You know, workstations, do it locally. Right, but in order to do it, you had to have the three M's because if you, you know, those little PCs, you can't do anything with those. <laughs> so have yeah, have that
0: it. that megahertz really,
1: really, <laughs> man. That megahertz really made a big difference. Yeah, definitely. right. <laughs>
0: So so I, I also saw in your bio, we, we had never talked about this, but you were, you worked on the HP 9000, which was, that did end up being a, a very, uh, I think, popular unit that I think I still see every once in a while based that's on true. that architecture. Yes,
1: that's true. I, I mean, we, I, I got to be quite a specialist in the area of, of high-performance computer design, particularly parallel and what we called at the time reduced instruction set computing, which was the beginning of high-performance computing as we know it mm-hmm. today. And uh, we did some interesting designs there at that time. So, yeah, the 9,000 was one of them. And eventually I was responsible for all of those products sold into the technical market, which was defined by engineers and scientists. So I, I've spent my life hanging around engineers and scientists and trying to build either computers or more recently software to meet their needs, and which is kind of fun. The demographic hasn't changed much, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Still hanging around the same people. And there are a great bunch of people. I mean, I always liked it because they were, you know, just trying to get a job done and they needed help. Right. You know, good people trying to do the right thing and that, that, that fit my personality just fine, so.
0: Yeah, well, and there's a lot to get done. I mean, that's one mm-hmm. thing that I've always come to data centers from the facilities end, and then you, you don't always cross over to the actual server admins and things like that, but the more that I've got into that world, you realize why there's no crossovers that they have their hands so full that <laughs> nobody has time to work with each other. Sometimes, that's uh, right. And you know, it's getting better. I think maybe that you know because of some of the hyper converged infrastructures, there's there's some improvement in the ability to talk between disciplines. But I'm not. Well, yes,
1: it has gotten better. I mean, I think Linux helped us a lot during the day mm-hmm. when we were doing the workstations. We were building proprietary operating systems mostly. Uh, so each one was unique and they didn't have much in common. Uh, even hooking them together at the time, mini computers at the time, uh, we'd always say, well, we could hook them together, but they wouldn't have much to say. You know that they, they, they don't, they didn't communicate very effectively. So the workstation was the beginning of communication because it was by definition a system that allowed all of the computers on the net to communicate with one another easily and efficiently, even though at the time it was only among the brands we sold, it was still proprietary. But that evolved, particularly with Linux, that brought, you know, Linux brought some common basis to that. And also standards like like Ethernet and TCP IP and all the rest. So finally we're able to to communicate heterogeneously, although, I still get challenged by getting my own PCs to communicate to one another once in a while, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do, yeah.
0: I was just having that problem. Well, I, I was having problem with a virtual machine that I yeah. actually still use sometimes XP for um, some legacy stuff, and I was having horrible time with that because my Windows ten machine that would, the virtual machine was on had problems, and then it just trickled down the line, and that was a real pain. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, uh, it's not even today as easy as sometimes it should be, and not as easy yeah. as it was in the early 80s when we did it in a proprietary sense. The beauty of proprietary is you can, of course, engineer it to work beautifully right out of the box. Right. The, the downside is you've got one supplier and you're stuck with that supplier and you don't get the opportunity to shop on price or, you know, uh, be use a competitive market to drive down costs. So
0: you're not the first person that said that. They kind of talked about the 80s and the, the, sort of golden age of things working properly <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. since then because of the complexity. And even though we have these virtual architectures and virtual machines that can mimic some of the older architectures, it actually adds another layer of complexity and abstraction <laughs> Does it doesn't, you know, it makes it even harder.
1: With flexibility, you get uh, the responsibility for choice. It's like a, right. buying a stereo system. You can buy it fully integrated and, and they make the decisions for you. But if you buy it as components, it's your job to hook them together and get them to work. And that responsibility right. exists in computing systems as well.
0: So going back to the the sort of terminal days and then the proprietary network days, is that what brought you into data centers? Because it was more of a mainframe type ideal than a, a, what we currently think of data centers. But it, was it the similar room space or, or were you involved in that in any way back then?
1: No, it's been an indirect path. I was working for these computer companies, HP being the most recent, and my partners, my software partners, that I was always trying to get to take advantage of my newest, latest, and greatest hardware uh, were my customers in a sense. I would go out and visit these companies and say, well, won't you please port your your application to my new variation of hardware software so that you, you know our customers can run faster. So I knew a lot of these software partners as a result of my role at Hewlett Packard. And I decided eventually once we had solved most of the problems in computing that I thought were interesting, including large-scale parallelism and distributed computing and so forth, I started to look for something next to do, and I went to work for a company called Ansys. Ansys was the market leader in finite element analysis, and I thought simulation software was going to be the next horizon beyond CAD. CAD was kind of mature by the time I did this. This was the 1990s, late 90s. Uh, or mid 90s, at least. And, and mm-hmm. CAD was pretty well established. And so I thought computer and engineering and simulation would be the next one. And I, I was right. Uh, so I went to work for ANSYS and, and worked in the area of finite element analysis, which is sort of uh, they use it in, in structural integrity and, and crash analysis and things like that. And it was interesting, but stress and strain and structural analysis was not to me as interesting as fluid dynamics. And they did do some fluids at ANSYS, but eventually I left and went to work for a company called Fluent. They were the market leader in computational fluid mechanics, and that was a lot of fun. Because in fluids, you get exposed to everything from um, data centers to uh, gas turbines to interior comfort to mixing to combustion to... Uh, incompressibles such as water and uh, oils uh, drill bits I mean the range of application for fluid dynamics is so broad because it's used fluid as you know is used as a medium for heat transfer almost everywhere and and once we were able to model combustion and phase change we had enough breadth to be able to model a wide range of different physical phenomena. So I did that for about eight years. But eventually, you know, what I do is every about every 10 years, I try to think about what I want to do next. I try to do it on boundaries of 10 years. And I turned 50 and thought, okay, you know, Vice President of Marketing for the leading software supplier in the world, getting a little older, time to figure out what to do next. And we had this product that we had built called CoolSim. We had done it only in the United States. We had done it as a skunkworks. We funded it creatively. It wasn't in the main development group. It was done through one of our operational groups, U.S. operations at Fluent. And I had been encouraging it because it was unique. It was taking a general purpose application like Fluent, which by definition is fairly hard to use, and putting on the front end a very easy to use interface for a specific target, in this case data center design. And so it was a what we call the client-server application. It used the cluster for all the heavy computation. On the client, it was a nice lightweight interface that was using local graphics and local capabilities of the local computer, but wasn't doing the computation there. We experimented with that. It was an idea I had been promoting to help reduce the cost, to reduce the complexity, and to make it more of a periodic user kind of format. And CoolSim was the first one. We did like that while I was in Fluent. And then eventually, Fluent got acquired, interestingly enough, by the company Ansys that I'd already worked for. (laughs) And I became head of product planning and product management for them. And there was this little product off to the side that they weren't going to pay any attention to because it was way too small called CoolSim. And so about three years into it or two years into it, I put up my hand. And said, Do you want that one or can I buy it? (laughs) Right. And so I bought it and took it private. I'm a value added partner of theirs. I still use their solvers and measures and post processors, but I do, we do uh, as a company, the interface and the support and the focus on data center design. The irony is it was full circle. I was back to electronics packaging again, in a sense, right back where I started. Right. Uh, But I had taken this rather obscure path through. A different exposure to different things and it made me actually very well suited for the task because i understand of course both electrical and mechanical and you know there's not much at that point that i wasn't exposed to and so it seems to be a good fit and it also fit my lifestyle this is a lifestyle company we're not looking as you well know because you've been my customer so you we weren't looking to, to sell it or make big money this is just something i enjoy doing and probably do it as long as my mind works
0: well it sounded like uh, you were kind of Saying that your journey to get to CoolSim wasn't exactly that you wanted to get into data center modeling. It was more that this happened to be the product that had that software as a service.
1: Exactly. uh, Skunkworks component. Yes. And we knew it was going to be a big one because data centers are getting more dense, as you well know, and getting bigger and, and getting more complex over time. So I knew it was a good bet. That's why we bet on it to begin with. And I also figured there was good upside in the evolution of it uh, because air cooling is not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to right. be there for quite some time. Um, the thought was, as you know, because it's Applied Math Modeling is the company, CoolSim is the product. And so the thought is over time to expand into other market segments by changing just the user interface for the most part and letting everything else remain relatively constant. And that is true. We have, in fact, been seeing that. Uh, We have done work with CoolSim in the areas of, for example, gun range design. (laughs) Interestingly enough, (laughs) I was working on some gun ranges this morning. So you can do interior flows of any kind. It doesn't have to be a data center. And uh, we think there's markets for that as well. Now, are they as big, et cetera, is a a good uh, discussion. But nonetheless, I think there's a whole group of markets or target markets that are within the interior analysis space. Those include things like I mentioned gun ranges, another one we've done is paint booths. You take a look at a Southwest aircraft, and it's got an awful lot of paint on it. So um, the issue of getting that paint put on there requires a big, big, big space. The flow rate inside that space has to be a certain level. It has to be laminar. So airflow inside of laboratories, clean rooms, paint booths, gun ranges. And all we're talking about is airflow. We, we, we haven't done any thermal, you know, the thermal discussions there as well. So we think there's a target market for a variety of these sort of sub-segments that are there, and we always thought a data center would be the first, but there'll be other variations that come out of it, all using the same basic structure and same idea of what we call periodic user. In other words, they only use it occasionally, as you have, use it occasionally when you get a project. Price it that way and base the cost of it correlated more to the utilization of it and less correlated to some other criteria. Historically, we'd always used features. Uh, if you're gonna use this feature and that feature and so on, then you pay more. But feature-based pricing uh, has its own issues if you've ever been exposed to it. It would be like buying a car and negotiating over features. Now, there's a certain amount of that that is done, but not so much today. Pretty much you get it all right. for a fixed price. Um, but you can imagine having to negotiate for the steering wheel and asking, why, well, why am I paying for it? <laughs> it's required to drive it, you know. Right. Why am I paying uniquely for it?
0: Right. Yeah, you might, you might get the new interior trim package, but you're not going to get a better steering wheel. or, or Exactly. You know. Today's episode is brought to you by Green Lane Design. Green Lane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, from small server rooms to major data centers for Fortune 100 companies. GLD is also expert at computational fluid dynamics simulation. Mouthful, uh, that's computer simulations of airflow and data centers. If you would be interested, go to greenlanedesign.com. Click on Contact and mention the podcast. So the other thing, you know, the just getting into using CoolSim specifically is that it is, uh in terms of CFD software, it is somewhat simplified. The nice thing about data centers is they're usually big boxes. The room is a big box. The air conditioners are a big box. The floor plenum is a big box and the server racks are big boxes. And so that simplifies the user interface a lot. And uh, is that part of the reason that the cool thing happened was that all, not just is it a, a good use case in terms of people wanting to do this periodic type of analysis, but also it's pretty easy for regular Joes to do. Is that? Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly. So, yeah.
1: exactly correct. It's a well-understood problem. It's not a high-tech problem in that, in fact, we're only dealing with convective heat transfer. We don't do much in the area of conductive or radiant because it's unusual that they, uh, they are really of consideration in right. other words it's dominated by the convective heat transfer
0: right.
1: and you, you are right even geometrically it tends to be blocky in other words those things you just described are often rectilinear structures right that makes the meshing simple so we're able to automate the sequence to a large degree and therefore the learning curve is quite short for users uh, learning curve on cool is typically one or two hours and by the way interestingly enough it's not even language specific i Just brought on new users a couple of days ago. Latin America seems to be very interested in this technology. They like our price points in particular because they're correlated Mm -hmm. to use. So we can scale down. The beauty of this kind of method, you can scale down on price or cost to meet their needs. And they were able to come up and and use the system within a couple of hours. They were running models. They don't speak English. So (laughs) it transcends language quite nicely as well. Right. now they're edu- they're educated people, so you know there you go, and they do speak some english it's not but the point is the system is easy enough to use the so language barrier is not uh, a problem for us
0: what's also interesting to me is that at some point you have to have for usability's sake and and for the difficulty of computation, you have to have some limits. You have to have some level or layer of abstraction to say, okay, we're going to model the rack, but we're not going to model the servers inside of the rack. And then maybe if you want to go deeper, you could model the rack and the servers inside, but you're not going to model the individual components inside of the server and so on, you know, so-and-so up and down the line. And it, it would be possible technically to actually model down to the chip you know there there are cfd software that that actually model the airflow through the actual package. computer yes. box yeah yes. so yes. so you can see it pass going past memory but at the same time you can abstract that down by just knowing what the inlet temperature is and knowing that the box itself is rated for x inlet temperature That's so right. it, we call that,
1: this we call this level of granularity and you are right that when a user first starts up a brand new user of well, any kind of application they don't know the level of granularity that is appropriate so right. what we've done at cool sim is we have already selected for you the level of granularity that makes the most sense based on our experience in the data center modeling field so we've taken the experience we've learned over the years and encapsulated it into the software so that it is giving you the appropriate level of granularity without causing solve times to be so high that you can't get anything done because that's right. the problem I'm I mean, people the naive people will say to us oh well can you go all the way to the chip level sure have you got a week for (laughs) for a set of answers to come back you know yes we can do it but it's going to take a very long time or many 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 processors or cores uh
0: and what's the point
1: turns into (laughs) cost yes and um, (laughs) by the way the answers will be the same
0: (laughs) right well okay you know the the um hardware manufacturer many of them actually do CFD on the box itself so yes. Yes. they there's already a, a set understanding of what the inlet temperature has to be so it's like wow. well you know you're just wasting time and effort.
1: A method in simulation Drew is to do what we call sub modeling so a, a, one approach that we use in, in systems design and large-scale systems is let's first model the subcomponent whether that's a steam turbine or electronics package and then let's create an algebraic expression for it once we understand its input as a function of output kind of relationship, right? We create a function for it, a algebraic representation of it, and then we put the algebraic representation inside the larger model that's trying to do the whole room. So instead of modeling within for example the computer itself with Airflow, we first model the Airflow of the computer, create a function that represents that relationship, and then use the function in the data center to model uh, the individual pieces of equipment within the larger infrastructure and still be able to get it done in a reasonable amount of time. And that's essentially what we do in Coolson. The individual racks are functions that behave like a server based on our experience modeling the server called sub-modeling.
0: And, and you can change many of those parameters to, to fit more specifically with the type of server that you're working with. So exactly. we, yep. we, we've had to do that a few times because, you know, we've run across some funky server types and have, <laughs> have had to work with things. Especially, we, we started to get into the cryptocurrency mining world and hmm. that just in terms of the airflow and the delta T over the miner itself, we really had to work through that. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard to do, but we it did take actual real-world measurements that we had to take to that's right. That we could match.
1: The boxes will change a little bit depending on them. Even the temperature rise across them will change based on. And, and to be perfectly frank, the entire data center is a transient run, transient analysis. It, in other words, everything is changing with respect to time, particularly when you put a control system on like variable speed fans right they're they're seeking they're going up and down the individual servers have control systems now and they're seeking and moving up and down and the work we do is steady state in terms of simulation not transient but again this is a question of practicality not technology if we were to solve it as a transient it would take longer and you'd have so much output data that it would be d- difficult to draw many conclusions from it right So we make assumptions like it's going to be fundamentally steady state at the end of the day. Let's model it as steady state. Or we'll also pick multiple steady state conditions and look at those and then use, you know, basic uh, assumptions. As you know, we do crack failure analysis or air handler failure analysis. So what happens if an air handler goes down? One of the more challenging ones in the data center is transient altogether. What happens if a cooling unit goes down a big, you know, like a chiller? People right. will ask us that question. But there are so many unknowns that it's difficult to model it with much accuracy because every data center is different. And by the way, the cooling method they're using is often different. Even the medium is different. We don't know, for example, what the specific heat of things like a rack is. What's a rack? What's the specific heat of a rack full of servers? Because you need that for conjugate heat transfer. So the transient case is still um, somewhat challenging, mostly because We've never uh, tested it in a laboratory to understand exactly what some of the parameters are we need in order to do the modeling effectively.
0: Well, that's one of the, you know, for for us working with CoolSim and, and generally doing CFD, is that we, we had to work very hard to match the data that we got in the field with CoolSim and vice versa. So we would constantly go do measurements in the field, put it into the... CFD software, CoolSim, run the solver, get the results from CoolSim, and then go back into the field and check it again. Yep. And by fine-tuning that, it, it really did get us some very good results, yes. uh, actually. It, it was difficult at times, but then we could take those results and pay them forward to the next CFD that we did and, and learn and learn as we went. So, you know, it, it was helpful. It, you know, it, it was good to really take the time to do that.
1: We always advise people, even in general purpose uh, safety modeling or any kind of modeling, that the modeling is a tool. It's an aid. It supports good engineering decisions and good engineering judgment. It is not a replacement for good engineering. Right. It is only a tool, just like a wrench is only a tool when you work on your car. You may use it as a hammer, but it's actually a wrench. You know.
0: (laughs) So, in turn, you know, taking us to good ideas and what what makes good engineering. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see right now if you're ever in contact with people about what they're having problems with, not in terms of using the software, but actually mistakes that they're making in data center design? Is that something that you see or you have any finger well, on pulse? Most
1: of them are simple. My demographic in large part, Drew, consists of younger people because um, they always have the younger people do the modeling for some reason. I don't know if that's, right. you know, they, oh, I give it to the young guy. He, he knows about that stuff or young woman, whatever. they, But what we often find is they just forget certain things like they forget that air has momentum that the total pressure consists of both static pressure and dynamic pressure and therefore you know if you've got a lot of dynamic pressure you don't have any static pressure coming coming through a plenum or underneath a floor if the uh, floor tile is too close to the cooling unit no air is going to come out because the velocity is too high under that floor so They've, they've studied Bernoulli. They understand sort of the equation. They passed the course because they wouldn't be here if they did. not right. But the practical application of it is sometimes uh, lacking because they don't have that level of experience. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, people continually want to try to put containment around a cold aisle containment or a hot aisle containment. Yeah. And then, and then set the leakage parameters to zero. Right. And I say to them, well, why are you running CFD if you're going to set the leakage parameters to zero? Because if you set them to zero, they're going to be perfect. It's going to look beautiful. Why run a right. model if, in fact, you're going to have the leakage? The, the challenge is, if I do have leakage, what and where does it? Where is it, and what do I do about it? And how does the system perform? Right. With leakage in place, so I recently had a, a situation where. The customer definitely wanted to see it with no leakage, and interestingly enough, it's difficult to get the solver to solve with with no leakage because it struggles with right. continuity mass. You know, it just all things are not perfect. They uh, leak, they get hot, they uh, so
0: so. Th- I, I can't tell you how many times I've actually kind of sat with somebody and explained Bernoulli a little bit in the, That's in the right. I can. Yes, and and when and it's not that they don't know it, but it's just that. I mean it it sometimes it's almost too simple to think about once you start getting into the equations. It's it's easier to just say, Oh, faster air has less pressure. And once you say that, they're like, Oh, I get it. You know, right. and and you can, you know, I every once in a while I'll pull up a YouTube video of like a the uh air column with a ball inside that right. it shows Bernoulli and it. It, it it's like, Oh yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, okay. And we just had an issue like that about a month ago with someone. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, oh, actually, this extremely fast moving air is actually sucking hot air down from the ceiling. Yes. And you, you could feel it like a waterfall, hot air coming down from above. And, you know, it was, it was very obvious when I walked in. I was like, oh, this is what's happening. This is going to be a problem. We can try and put some baffles in, but it's still going to happen. So we have to have a little bit more balancing of pressure as well. And we figured some things out, and I think it looks a lot better. But you're right. I, getting people to understand the math versus the actual implementation is, is one of the real reasons why CFD is helpful.
1: That's correct. It gives you the visualization. It allows you to see something that's invisible, air, and be able to watch it move. And, watch. and, and sometimes, even for me, you stare at it, you go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense now. So the visualization of it is powerful. Yeah. The other, the other mistake I see people make a lot is in the area of containment, either hot aisle or cold aisle. They want to completely contain it without leakage. They don't want any leakage. So the idea is, of course, the theoretical goal is no leakage. So you want to put a container around your cold aisle, your hot aisle, and duct it back or bring it up through the ceiling back to the cooling units. Well, that's great. But if it's perfect, you don't need to run CFD on it. It's
0: perfect. <laughs> right, right. It, it will always get to the temperature it wants to be at.
1: Yeah, the the yeah. plots look uniform. They're kinda of boring. They're one color, you know. Right. <laughs> Same color as the supply air, you know, it's just blue or it's green. Or it's right? Just one color.
0: And the fact is that it, it's not you can't get a perfect seal in reality anyway, so you have to have, you know, at least Some have leakage. Some amount of leakage, yeah.
1: That's right. So now the amount and type I think is fair debate. How do we want to characterize it? I think that's a fair discussion to have and there are several different methods. But to have none is inappropriate, and so I see sometimes people trying to use CFD to prove perfect outcome because they're trying to make a perfect design for their customer. Right. But without some kind of leakage or some kind of then uh, it's unrealistic, and oftentimes you can build very unrealistic models that are useless because the real world's kind of messy, you know.
0: Right. So is that something that you find that you have to do a fair amount of the time? Is is walk back people's expectations of what is actually possible in real life versus what can be modeled?
1: Yeah. Sometimes I have to set their expectations correctly, particularly in the case of transient analysis, like we were talking about earlier. You know, sure, we can do a transient analysis for you, but what are the assumptions? What, what would you like to assume? Um, are your pumps still running on your glycol loop or or your, your tertiary loop? Uh, are they under the UPS or do you want the fans to ramp down immediately? Uh, the air handle is in the room ramping down or is containment in place do you have leakage what right. are you are you going to open the doors in your containment as soon as you uh, see it down you know a failure or are you going to run out and open the doors right. what are you going to do because these things all have a distinct effect on the amount of time that you're allowed before the server inlets become critical but without knowing all of those assumptions it's difficult to come up with anything that's meaningful it doesn't mean you can't simulate it it just means that the Simulation isn't meaningful because the assumptions that you use were not valid. Right. So the assumptions often become an issue. We have to talk people through it. It is a learning curve. We do webinars on these things. I have one coming up in October on how to model containment. It, it seems, in one sense, to be kind of a kind of a uh, a boring topic in a sense. But on the other hand, what I tend to do is watch the trouble my users are having and then I'll put a webinar together to try to help them all get through this particular uh, area and uh, the one I'm staring at right now is hot owl cold owl containment and how to model it uh, because they aren't perfect and they often cause trouble inside the contained area themselves imagine a server up on top that's uh, dominating the airflow because it's got a large Delta T and therefore, you know, it's running pretty hot. It's got a pretty strong flow out the back and it's creating an air dam for all the servers underneath it. So these servers underneath it can't get any air by, there's actually pressure buildup going on underneath the one on top because it's creating a horizontal air dam in the, uh, in the exhaust. Right. So Some of these things do happen leakage on rails. As you're well aware rail leakage right. around the outside air is fairly lazy. It goes to the least path of resistance. And if that happens to be around the edge, as opposed to up through the nice chimney you've put in place. It will go around the edge. Right. It doesn't care.
0: Well, I think a lot of people forget that the servers themselves are an airflow system. You can almost think of them as heaters that have, you know, people forget about server fans and the power of server fans. Yes. Uh, And that within the rack you have this internal unless it's buttoned up you have an internal airflow system that you know the some of that lowest pressure space is closest you know closest to the front of the server so it's just thinking a little bit differently and and actually we've found often that those very small leaks and differences add up Yes. Uh, to a huge degree. And, and they
1: make a big difference. Remember, Drew, the PUE calculation does not include the, the server fans. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, exactly.
1: <laughs> it, it conveniently excludes them.
0: <laughs> right. I've, I've said that to a lot of people that, you know, you're not necessarily making a more efficient data center this way. And and so there's also the, the sort of two pieces that we're talking about with the thermal recovery and then the hot aisle, cold dial, is there's a disconnect sometimes between efficiency and availability, that sometimes people optimize for availability and neglect efficiency and and vice versa. And vice versa, yeah.
1: Yeah, in-row cooling is a good example of that. They'll do do in-row and then they'll contain the cold on the – in other words, they'll configure their servers, the racks – so that the contained area is cold. Now you're in a big room and the contained area is cold. And so if you have a failure of those, one of those units, or, or, or God help you, two of those in-row units at the same time, there's no chance for recovery. Right. Because the servers are all gonna hit a fan curve, they're all gonna stall, and everything's gonna go up and smoke very quickly. Right. If you flipped it around, just flipped it, so it just reversed the flow, turned those racks around, turn the cooling units around. so. That you're containing the hot side and let the room be the cold side. Now you've got the volume of the room. So if you lose a cooling unit in the in-row configuration, there may be another one from another adjacent contained area, rack rows contained area that can supplement it. In other right. words, the room, the volume of the room is supplementing the failure condition of the of the structure. So yes, uh, sometimes just simple things. And you are right; they often go for efficiency and forget about availability or vice versa.
0: Often, that's why you end up having very large volumes. You know, data centers are big, and so they have very tall ceilings, and there's just a very large room that is great because specific heat, there's a lot of sort of latent cool air in general to allow for heat recovery. And sometimes, in some places, it can be like hours before the whole place heats up. If you
1: configure it correctly,
0: yes. If you configure it correctly. But the, sometimes that can be inefficient because you're you're getting cool air back to your cooling units, which means that they're not running at peak efficiency. Some people do, like you're saying, contain the cold aisle even in even in a large volume, which means that even if you're pulling it from the raised floor, you're still not getting <laughs> the, the the best air.
1: That's right. The benefit of the room. Yeah. Yeah. The other problem I find in that configuration, cold aisle. In this case, you're talking about a raised floor design where they've contained the cold. Yeah. So they've we'll arranged the racks so that the cool inlets are facing the, the perforated tiles and they've boxed that all in. The problem I've noticed in those environments is that uh, they'll bring somebody into the room, like a, a manager or, or an owner of the equipment that's in the room, like in a colo, colocation yeah. facility. And the manager will immediately go, It's too hot in here. I know this because data centers are supposed to be cold. Yes, and they'll, they'll force the person to turn the temperature down. Well, they don't realize they're standing in the hot aisle. The temperature right. should be ninety degrees, <laughs> but but you know they're forcing them to drive it to to say seventy degrees, which means they're driving the air conditioning system to be a fifty degrees uh, supply or below, and uh, it's terribly inefficient. So I, I tend to like hot aisle contained designs because the room can be the cold can be the supply air, right. and then you drive the supply air up to sixty eight degrees and Everybody's happy, you know.
0: And then you have the the hottest, you know, by by having a a limited volume for the hot air, Mm -hmm. you have the hottest air getting back to the air conditioning units, and therefore you have a better heat transfer over whatever cooling media you use.
1: Exactly correct. Now, the only constraint I'll point out there is that those configurations I like, but one of the other mistakes I see people making is they want to make their hot aisles really narrow. They only want to give them four feet on the hot side. And they're running fairly high densities in the racks. And again, we get back to Bernoulli. What happens is you have two servers facing one another in a contained area. Their hot exhaust is coming at each other. So you have got this hot exhaust coming at each other and it bangs together right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Pressure goes up, right? Because Mm -hmm. I've got momentum. And then the momentum gets uh, depleted and it goes to static pressure. So the pressure rises in the hot aisle. Oh, by the way, it's 20, 30 degrees higher so I've got pressure being caused by high temperature because of the ideal gas law, right? PV is RT, mm-hmm. so the pressure's higher. Oh, by the way, I've got momentum converting to static pressure, so I've got higher static pressure. And so the hot aisles are running at higher pressure than the cold aisles, even though they generally oversupply the cold in terms of volume. So I have engineers calling me out going, why am I delivering 100,000 CFM, and I'm pulling out of it only 75,000 CFM, get them leaking into the cold aisles well because it's pressure and <laughs> not right. volume it's a pressure problem because the right. the hot aisle's is too narrow if you open the hot aisle up and make it wider then the pressure drops and things begin to behave but they don't understand that right off the bat they real right so you know, it's it's two things we've talked about there one is the momentum the Bernoulli relationship between static pressure and dynamic pressure and the other piece of it is the ideal gas law when you heat up Air, it gets, it gets, the pressure goes up, right? Right. That's how your car works. That's the <laughs> basic law of mo, of mobility in the United States. Is pressure. Yeah, just in,
0: temperature in, equal yeah. pressure. Yeah. So that kind of brings us back to the math of it. Is that something that was interesting to you—the math and the physics and the differential vector calculus that you had to use in order to do the CFD? Is that something that was? Well, how
1: personally, personally I was interested in the physics. As a as yeah. a person, I was always more interested in the physics itself. The mathematics was a way to get at the physics, and I wasn't predisposed to mathematics as a kid. I I had to learn it the hard way. Right. It didn't come naturally. But I was always interested in the physics of it and, and understanding how it all worked. And as a result, um I got pretty good at understanding the physical phenomena, at least from a application point of view. I was never real good at developing software. I was better at applying it, right. So yeah, and that's how I ended up in product management is obviously the application of it was really interesting for at at fluent for a wide variety of applications from aircraft engines to uh, consumer products, and really quite a wide range of
0: products. So that kind of gets back into when you were. At Fluent, and you are a VP of marketing, which is as technical as you are, is almost a surprise because sometimes those two things don't go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is you know what what are some of the marketing lessons that you have learned since getting into CoolSim as opposed to the difference between CoolSim and Fluent as the larger company? Well, it's
1: easier. It's fundamentally <laughs> easier. You know, <laughs> I was at one point, um, while I was at Fluent, I think I was responsible for forty products, and you know the problem is. They, you can't get your arms around 40. It's just too many and you can't really get into any detail on on that many. Uh, so here I'm focused on just one. And for me, it's a welcome change to get back to actually working with customers and working with users and being able to become proficient with one application. Right. As opposed to not being proficient at all at 40. So personally, it's more rewarding because I get to work with people like you and, and, and meet and, it's always the customer relationship is always something i really enjoyed. With respect to having a technology background, I always felt it was an aid. In fact, uh, early on, I I knew that understanding engineering and understanding the discipline was going to help me on the business side. I was always interested in the business side, but I knew that if I couldn't articulate the benefit of a particular product, I wasn't going to be able to do well in the market. So product differentiation uh, is in technology and in order to do it well you have to understand how it works Um, many many people in my life who have been in the field of marketing communications for example become intimidated by the technology because they didn't have a background in it and they have trouble
0: right
1: engineers and understanding why where for me you mentioned the hp 9000 i would sit with the development guys at lunch i would go over and, and sit in their building and sit around and talk about memory design and and, and cache design and, and multiprocessing design. and Why are you doing it that way? Why are you doing a right through cache instead of a right back cache? Why is cache coherency important? Why is a Harvard architecture in cache design important? And you learn these things while eating lunch. <laughs> right, right. If, if A, you understand the basic, under, you know, the basic tenements of engineering design. And second of all, you're not intimidated by them and you know, people are people, they just people, they don't, I, I never was uh, one to be too intimidated by anybody, it's, it's the ideas I was interested in, you know, and yeah. so we'd sit around and talk about these ideas, and I was really the student learning from them, and I was fortunate enough to get exposed to some bright people early on in my life, and they taught me an awful lot about it, I never designed any of it myself, I just know how it works, and understand how it works by hanging around these people, and my mm-hmm. value add was translating that into text or audio or video, so that someone who didn't have my education could understand it, like a consumer. So right. marketing, marketing, I always felt was really sales support. It was the idea of being able to articulate the benefits of a given product to somebody, differentiate it well enough to be able to make it something that they could both understand and, and uh, hopefully, would we'll choose yours because the the benefit was articulated a little more cleanly or that it was more tangible with respect to price performance or whatever the parameter happened to be.
0: So how does that differentiate from actually being in charge, like, you know, in charge of the whole kit and caboodle as opposed to just the, the one marketing piece?
1: Fortunately for me, I came up through the ranks of first of product support and then um, technical product support and then product management. So I learned how to do it all, mm-hmm. all the way up, you know. They always kid you, you know, keep your business cards on the way up the, the, the corporate ladder because you may need them on the way down, right? Right. right. <laughs> so fortunately in this role I do a lot of that stuff myself, but have the skills to do it. I was always a pretty much hands-on person anyway. And okay. so I used to uh, I used to host through this uh my work for Hewlett Packard, actually Apollo Computer First. We we were trying to train the sales organization on computers and and you know Advantages of ours, of course. So we developed a radio program, and we call it WKSG Radio. And we, I made a little radio laboratory, studio, out of an old, very small closet, kind of a storage closet at the building I was in, and set up a bunch of audio equipment. And we made uh, cassette tapes, and we'd pretend it was a radio program, and we'd inter- I would I would interview people for products and would uh, produce it and uh, ship it to all the sales guys, and it worked really well. <laughs> uh, precursor of the podcast, you know, but same idea.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, in some ways, even more helpful because you're you're giving the salespeople exactly what they need. Or the, That's right. You know.
1: And they'd ride around and listen to it. Well, of course, they're all on the road most of the time, so they'd ride around and listen to it. And the, and the Asians really liked it, too, because they could replay it and, and sort of get the English twice, you know, sort of. And we, we annotated it with music. We put music between the, the segments, and um, it turned out to be a pretty fun production. It worked well. In fact, when we were acquired by Hewlett Packard, they liked it so much, we kept it going. And uh, we did it uh, there, too, for another probably five years before it, it got too complicated in terms of products to, right. to, really, to really do well. Because the good thing about wor- workstations, of Apollo, was that it was a pretty small number mm-hmm. of products. You could cover them all pretty well. One of the frustrations of being a senior executive at one of these companies is you don't get to do much of it yourself anymore. Everybody else is doing it and you're overseeing it. And that's fine. You've got the skills to be able to make sure it's a good job. But if you enjoy doing it, then you miss kind of it. You end up in a bunch of meetings all the time and you hang around with fewer and fewer people until there's only, you know, a half a dozen of people you basically hang around with. And no one's ever met a customer before except you, you know. Right. (laughs) So so it's refreshing, particularly. Uh, you know, at this point in my life, I'm getting a little older and you know it's it's fun for me to be back doing something tangible and and, and uh, working on something, particularly in a small organization where you don't have to have all the meetings and everything. everybody can communicate pretty effectively. We used to say the the communication problem in a company is inversely it's a geometric in- inverse proportion to the number of people. The more people you have, infinitely, the infinitely the larger the more difficult communication becomes until you can't really the organization gets big enough. So all you're doing is communicating. You can't get anything done, because you right. Spend all your time communicating. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I recently read that you know there's there's mega projects and that does seem to be the case. The larger the project gets, it almost becomes impossible to manage it. Right. And some of the biggest failures have been the largest projects, such as the uh, F-35 Joint Strike Fighter that that has become like a $700 billion project that nobody's happy with the results. And it's not to say they didn't do some amazing things, but it just was trying to please everybody and just got out of hand. And it seems like a corporation is that way too. That's why talking about CoolSim as being as focused as possible really makes sense to me in terms of an entrepreneurship perspective, because almost going back to the uh, recent Trout, like 22 mutable laws of marketing that you have owned your category data center software as a service computational fluid dynamics is as far as I understand it pretty much cool sim and cool sim alone
1: yeah we threaded a lot of needles there in a sense in other words we took that SAS idea of you know pay for what you use and put it together with CFD which hadn't been done before we put that together with an application-specific approach to a problem, data center design, and that threading works really well. I've been pleased with it. Everybody likes it. It takes the load off your desktop machine, so you don't have to wait for simulation to be done, because we do mm-hmm. it on the cluster. It amortizes the cost of the cluster across all the users. You don't have to worry about licenses and downloading licenses and putting them in place, which was always painful. And also just the ease of use of that interface being highly automated for specific tasks means the learning curve is short.
0: Right. And so if
1: you're a periodic user, you only come in every six months, coming up that curve is quick because it's focused. And a lot of the intelligence of the application is embedded. So it's automated. You know, there's two sides to this, Drew. People will tell you as well that, oh, we don't want monkeys pushing buttons. That's the flip side. If we make engineering simulation so simple, People will get the wrong answers because they don't understand the uh detail, but there is a compromise in there there 's a middle ground where you can embed enough intelligence into the application to ensure they 'll get reasonable answers and then make them work for more granularity or work for you know in other words use advanced interfaces or have to go to three levels of a GUI three levels of a a dialog box before you get at the fan curve or before you get at the. Right. (laughs) Right. So that you, you hide the complexity from them. Right. So that they get some answers early on that guide them in the right direction. Oftentimes the goal of these tools is to eliminate the bad ideas, right? You're trying to (laughs) narrow down the field of possibilities to a group that you know will work. And we say sometimes the benefit of this stuff simulation is the elimination of bad ideas from that set. Mm -hmm. So that the set you're left with are all realizable. And now let's turn up the fidelity and let's compare the last three or the last four to one another. Let's ignore the rest because it's clear those don't work. And the models we used to get to this point were fairly coarse. You don't need the fidelity to discard a bad answer or a bad design. You can usually find it with a fairly coarse model. Uh, As someone once said, I think it was Einstein, that models should be as simple as possible and no simpler. You know, I think that's how he
0: did it. (laughs) <laughs> that actually becomes almost like a uh, a nudge unit, like in economics, like you're, you're trying to just sort of allow everybody to do what they need, but just make it the easiest path be the one that they should take. And so that that comes down to UX design, like user experience. And I, I imagine that was a, a bit of a learning curve because it was all very much complement where you're at right now. <laughs> the, the, I think CoolSim is, is very easy to use at this point and, and really works very well. But there were some times when it wasn't, was more difficult, especially now you have AutoCAD integration, which is a fantastic right. step. Right. But you, can you talk about sort of your learning curve on user experience?
1: Well, user experience, is a, as a, it evolves, it comes over time. In other words, you evolve to, a, to something that works pretty well. It's hard when you first start off to go, okay, clean slate. How should it look? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes we don't have a clean slate. For example, in CoolSim, I started with a prototype. I purchased from the Ansys Corporation, effectively, a prototype that had been written in Visual Basic. And if you remember correctly, it was, was quite painful to use. It didn't have a 3D interface. So um, we came from there. And as a result, we had some legacy. We had to maintain a certain amount of compatibility to it from a user experience point of view, or the user would have to learn all over again. So we were very careful about how we took that next step and tried to bridge the gap between the past and the future in a way that uh, was reflective of other applications we could see on our left and on our right, most notably the, the answer set that we were using at the time and watching at the time. So uh, it still goes on today. I mean, right now I'm trying to decide how best to articulate the, uh, the energy consumption components outside the data center because we want to be able to predict energy consumed by the data center over an annual period we do a little of it today we want to do more of it how how best to create a user environment so people can express to you what their heat rejection system looks like outside the data center you know as you know if it's a, if it's a direct expansion uh, cooling system then that's fairly simple mm-hmm. but if it's chilled water chilled water can come in all kinds of configurations you know a, Primary root loop, secondary loop, glycol. Uh, it's got doesn't have a cooling tower. Doesn't have a you know air side economizer. There's all kinds of variations on the outside of that data center that are going to affect it. And we all we did was talk about chilled water. And but there's also Kyoto units that could be used and air side mm-hmm. cooling that could be used, air economizers that could be used. So there's a lot of variations there. And I'm sitting here today trying to figure out how best to express all of that so that the user right. can say, oh, yeah, there's my system right there, and I have these pumps here, and I have this there, and and then we can do an energy analysis. The energy analysis, it turns out, is fairly straightforward. It's algebraic. It's not that hard to calculate, mm-hmm. but how do you define it? How do you take what the customer has and give them a mechanism, a tool for expressing it so that we can get the mathematics set up right?
0: Well, especially predictively because yes. you know every every you could measure it after post facto after after it's already been uh installed but trying to figure out what this is going to look like is, is very difficult like even is the bypass working properly <laughs> if it's not Correct. then you're not going to have a proper you know your efficiency is going to change your energy curve is going to change and Correct. we've seen that <laughs> it's like oh, your your bypass is, is sticking a little bit. You know, that that changes everything. It does change everything. So, and furthermore,
1: in measurement, you're only measuring a point in time, right? So mm-hmm. if you go in to do the measurement, like uh, someone like you goes in and, and instruments for a day, but days a lot. They cost a lot of money for people to have you there, right? Yeah. You go home with a, a suitcase full of data. Um, it's only that day. What was the temperature that day? You know, what was the relative humidity outside? Right. You know, so our thought is to be able to do just that and then use it, use the data you took on a given day to calibrate the model uh, because that day represents a certain set of atmospheric conditions that you can adjust your curves and all of your devices so that you know it is calibrated for that day. And you can still run the curves for the rest of the year, but at least you've got one day. Now if you were able to measure another day, go there again and make another one, even better. or ultimately have a set of sensors that are feeding the simulation system dynamically. Mm -hmm. So it's a dynamic representation that's calibrated uh, for this instant in time. And from there, you can now simulate future conditions because your current conditions are validated and calibrated, you know. So again, predictive tool. But today, as you know, we use uh, PUE a lot, Drew, PUE right. is a terrible indicator of efficiency, particularly <laughs> on, the, on, the, uh, on the mechanical side. You know, it, right. It's awful, right? But in, I'm part of the ASHRAE um, TC 9.9, and we're working on a spec in, in a subgroup called 90.4, where we're actually looking at effectively the coefficient of performance for the entire data center system, the whole heat rejection system. So we're looking at how much energy is it required to drive this system compared to how much heat is it rejecting in general? And that's a better relationship. That's a better measure uh, of efficiency of the data center. At least it can't be gamed. It's it's you know, at least right. it's measuring the right stuff. But how do you get those numbers? How do you measure those? How do you get those in place? Um, sensors are getting cheaper, so certainly we can put sensors in place. And uh, building a model that represents the physical attributes of that heat rejection system with, is is of course necessary. And from there, you can now begin to go, okay, if I load the data center more heavily, or if I lose a cooling unit, back to the transient problem, at least now you've got the heat rejection system defined. So you can say, well, if I lose the chiller, but the pumps are still running, I've got glycol in the loop, the loop is this long, therefore I have this much absorption capability, I'm going to keep the loop running. Now I can begin to say temperature coming out of the cooling unit is a, a function of time looks like this, therefore my data center will behave like
0: that. Is that something that is sort of on your radar in terms of next yes. steps, is, is yes. integrating with building management or, or other yes, systems?
1: Very much so, yeah. Yeah. We've always thought that CFD simulation for data centers is something that should be done uh, periodically based on either a need or a change in the situation. About right. that, what they ought to pick up is, they may be automated, the system ought to pick up a change. For example, you've got a CFD model that has been run in the past that's representing the, st- the current state. Somebody goes into the data center and they put in a new rack of equipment somewhere that's 10 kW of, of load. Well, the sensors realize that. They come back around the loop and say, hey, there's new load over here. Uh, it uh, triggers, based on uh, that situation, another run of the CFD modeling system uh, in the background to determine uh, what the new outcome looks like in a failure mode scenario, right? Because you and I are always interested not in the steady state, not in the common, everything working scenario. That's, right. hopefully we've covered that case. (laughs) The case we're we're most interested in is, what if we lose an air handler? And those are well defined, as you know, CoolSim you can set up a bunch of variations off the main design for failure analysis. So it'd be very easy to have a script that says, hey, if a condition like this occurs, Rerun the failure sets and print for me or output for me onto my smartphone (laughs) a a set of new conditions that represent the failure mode conditions and let me know if there's a problem. Yeah, it's fairly easy. That's not I didn't not quite artificial intelligence there. You know, all I did (laughs) is put scripts in place and some sensors in place and and made a loop. Um, But one of the things we do think is that we could bring machine learning in once you instrument you could use machine learning to understand the behavioral patterns of the data and optimize the data center for efficiency based on uh, uh, just uh, reading the data itself. In other words, uh, set the fans correctly, set the chilled water correctly, set the amount of flow correctly uh, all based on uh, data that it's sensing right? and, and a simulation that proves that it's okay. So, we think the future is, yeah, integrate it, make it part of the system, add energy to it, couple it to the environment, and uh, let it become something that's there and working in the background, and we'll wake you up at 3 in the morning to tell you. <laughs> right.
0: That's that's what everybody likes, is to get woken up. At, at, at it's happened to all of us, I think. but. Uh... Yeah not well. much fun. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people about machine learning and, and AI, and especially in terms of building monitoring, that there are so many ways that that makes sense. Uh, not just deep learning neural nets, but heuristic algorithms and, and whatever it takes to take what you're seeing in the actual case and abstract it so that you can actually make good decisions based on it. Because somebody had recently told me, you know, if I have the best guy in the world, sitting in front of my bms system he might work for about four hours a day and if we have three shifts and there's three different people working for about four hours a day but they're not necessarily talking perfectly with each other so there's no perfect through line to figure out all right how's it changed throughout the day where are we at what would be the most efficient whereas the machine learning algorithms could do that sort of stuff exactly so uh, it seems like there's a lot of interest. And it'd be really interesting to see how CFD meets all of those.
1: Well, we think it's a natural extension to our existing business. Um, Yeah. We think it makes sense because you have to have the CFD there in order to be able to predict what goes on in the room. You can't do it without it. A lot of these companies that talk to you about predictive outcome and they don't have a CFD solver. I scratch my head and, well, how can you predict it if you can't do the CFD in the room? So we've got the CFD part done. That's easy now for us, difficult for everybody else that, that variant entry is quite large, by the way, so you can't just walk yeah, <laughs> in and right. do that. So the rest of it, though, is fairly straightforward. What we've just talked about is algebra for doing the energy analysis. That's not too complicated. Right. And then uh, collecting the data and being able to aggregate it as a result of reading the sensors and just putting the data together and being able to line it up on either a time domain or a frequency domain and and then record it. And you don't really need to build your own database to do that. I mean, there are systems already there, like you mentioned that are recording it, all you need to do is sample it. So we think it makes all good sense and it will come about over the next you know, few years, gonna take a little while to get there. But from a CFD point of view, it's quite a natural extension. From a DCIM point of view, it's a little more difficult because they don't have the CFD part done. So right. they can't get any further than the algebra. They can do the algebra and building modeling systems like Energy Plus and, and other codes like that are, are good in the general case, when you want temperature T and pressure P, but inside a data center, it's all a gradient. It's a three D gradient, as you all know. You know, temperature right. as a function of location is very important, particularly on the front of those racks and and so forth. So you have to do the three D modeling. So we think we're in good position. Uh we're not the only ones to be able to do it, but we're one of the leaders in doing it. And uh the structure we have put in place lends itself very nicely to that because again on the desktop or in the user's local environment is really just a client piece of code it's the CoolSim client which is very lightweight easy to install and run it doesn't take up much space and most of the heavy computation if it's when it's required is done on a cluster on the cloud right. yeah so it fits very nicely without having to mess up the, the person's uh, local environment or require a tremendous amount of capacity in terms of computation or storage. It doesn't have to be reserved for an occasional run of the CFD model.
0: Right. I, I've appreciated that because I've, I've run CoolSim on a very lack cluster computer a few times. <laughs> That's and, right. uh, instead of having to wait probably two days to get the solve back, I get it back in you know, 10 minutes. And, uh, it's like, that's the power of the cloud right there. (laughs) You know, one of my earliest, uh, you know, one of my earliest realizations that, oh, this cloud stuff, oh, this is going to be something. That's right.
1: (laughs) And for many years, all the way back to Apollo, we, we, we talked about cloud. I was a big proponent of, we used to call it network computing, had a different name, but at night, uh, when I worked for Apollo in the 1980s, I'm not old. We, (laughs) we used to do the, um, movies at night. We had a midnight movie team who would render movies at night for the annual SIGGRAPH graphics show. Mm. We'd all go there with our animations and uh, show them off, Um, including John Lasseter, who, by the way, as you probably know, is one of the key designers for Disney. He would go there. He would be one of the ones there and would make our movies at night and would render them on the people's desktops in a proprietary network. It was our own company. But everybody would leave their computer on at night, and we would use those, we'd harness those engines, those CPUs to render the, the movies. And we always knew that it would go heterogeneous, that would go outside our local network and be able to do that on the internet. But it took many years for the protocols to settle down to the point where we're able to do it. And today, yeah, I can sit in a Starbucks using my old laptop, which is getting very old. And I can set up very complicated models and pick them off and run them and download the results using a mobile hotspot for my phone while tied to a laptop in a Starbucks having a latte. you have come a out. long way, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know. Well, I, I'm really excited to to see what you're coming up with next. I, I will, uh, of course, keep paying attention. And how, how can our listeners keep up with you? Um, social media, website.
1: Yeah, you know, we don't do a lot of social media simply because of time. Um, We do quite a bit on LinkedIn. We don't do um, uh, so much Facebook. We don't think our demographics on Facebook, although they could be, but not for business sort of thing. So, yeah, and also our website, and we do a lot of webinars that we'll be talking about these kinds of things. So just check out our website, uh, www.coolsimsoftware.com, if you ever want to take a look. There's an awful lot there already in terms of, archived uh, material that we've done before.
0: When I yeah, do a webinar, we,
1: we, we try to be a teacher, you know, as much as anything else we try to teach. Um, and uh, whenever I do a webinar, I record it and then archive it and put it there for others to watch. So.
0: Yeah. You've done some great webinars. I I've learned a lot just by uh, paying attention. So
1: yeah.
0: that's a very good resource for people. Thanks. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you giving us this much time and, uh, you know we'll of course to be in touch but uh hope to talk to you again soon
1: thanks drew and, and good luck thanks for having us today and uh we look forward to working with you and, and data center tonight
0: that's our show i'd like to thank our guest paul bemis you can find him at paul bemis on twitter that's spelled b-e-m-i-s also he's on linkedin at bemis paul i'd like to thank our sponsor green lane design remember to mention the good data podcast to get that free assessment that helps everybody our music is algorithmically created by juke deck which is pretty amazing try it yourself uh, visit jukedeck.com. for good data i'm drew farnsworth talk to you next time on the podcast